This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for being here. Got another great program for you today, but I wanted to remind everybody before we get started that Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. So go to flux.community for more articles and podcasts about politics, philosophy, religion. And if you'd like this program, you can go to theoryofchange.show and you can get full access to all of the episodes with video, audio, and transcripts of every episode if you are a paid subscribing member. And I do want to express particular thanks for those who are paid subscribing members. You are making this show possible. We're not funded by universities or billionaires or nonprofit organizations. No, we're funded by people like you. And we definitely need your help to continue going and producing new episodes and expanding the audience. And I appreciate everybody who is sharing the episodes on various social media. And if you can't afford to become a paid subscriber right now, you can go to Apple Podcasts and give a nice written review. No matter how short it is, it's actually super, super helpful. So I do appreciate everybody who does that. All right. So with that little plug out of the way, let's get into today's show. History, as the old saying goes, repeats itself. There are many reasons for this, but one of them is that philosophy is actually far more important than a lot of people may realize. Where we think knowledge originates impacts our ability to perceive the world. And we cannot begin to respond to circumstances until we can perceive things accurately. There are a lot of forces in the present day world which hate that realization, unfortunately. And as I think we will see in the discussion today, these are unfortunately trends in human history and perhaps in humanity itself. There's a lot to unpack here and uh, joining me today to discuss all this is Richard Bett. He is a professor of philosophy at Johns Hopkins University and the author of a number of books on Greco-Roman skepticism. It is a tradition that is astonishingly relevant to the present moment, as I hope you will see in our discussion today. Welcome to Theory of Change, Richard. Thanks very much. So I think a lot of the history that we're going to be talking about here today, it may be unfamiliar to a lot of people because unfortunately, most universities and high schools do not uh, require students to learn about ancient philosophy. So let's maybe start the discussion here with Socrates and the sophists. Who were they and what were they about? Okay, well, so the sophists were a group of, well, higher educators in some sense. They were the first people who taught grown men. It was only men in those days. And they taught beyond the kinds of basic subjects that you might learn just as a normal member of society. And they taught effective public speaking, but they also had a number of what you might call theoretical interests, especially about the nature of human society often the origins of human society. And so in many ways, I think you can think of them as a kind of early kind of social scientist. And yeah, they are clearly interested in being able to make an effective case on either side of an argument and thinking about opposing sides of arguments. That's an important part of what the sophists are about. Socrates is around the same time. This is the late 400s BCE, possibly stretching a little beyond that, which is a period before Plato, and Plato had a lot of opposition to the sophists. But yes, Socrates was engaged in a lot of discussion of what things are good, what a good human life might be like. And so for him, a lot of discussion of 
a variety of different points of view, that was also part of what he was up to. Socrates seems to have been suspicious of the sophists in certain respects, but he also had some things in common with them, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Okay, and the signature form of discussion that Socrates engaged in is now known as Socratic dialogue. Tell us what that was. Well, I mean, this is as presented by Plato, mostly. And we have other sources of information about Socrates, but Plato is by far the most compelling. And in, in his version, it's questioning people about their assumptions, especially their assumptions about how a human life ought to be lived, what a good human life would be like. And yeah, as we see it in many of the dialogues of Plato, it involves getting people to see that they don't really know about the things they claim to know about. And it seems like that's a kind of starting point for search for better answers than one had before. Now, Socrates, in many of Plato's dialogues, makes clear he doesn't know the answers to these things either, but he's interested in getting people into a discussion with him uh, in, in, in an attempt to figure that out. And so, yeah, it's, it's a kind of painstaking inquiry, which more often than not leads to inconclusive results, but at least you've cleared away some kind of mistaken ideas that you might have had beforehand. That seems to be the method as depicted in much of what Plato gives us about Socrates. Yeah, and a lot of people uh, had seen value in that type of instruction ever since that point. And uh, sure. now yeah. a lot of people who are professors in a variety of fields engage in that themselves, right? That's right. I mean, that's always my attempt is to pose questions rather than just lecturing. And with a larger class, you have to do some lecturing. But yeah, with a small seminar, it's great if you can, if most of what comes out of your mouth is a question and getting the students talking and maybe getting them to reconsider some ideas that they were attached to before. So yeah, the Socratic method is much applauded, not always so easy to, to actually enact unless you're dealing with a small group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I guess in a sense, you could say that it's sort of a, an attempt to begin reasoning, to come to higher, more well-formed conclusions about the world. That sounds right. And ourselves. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. yeah, okay. And, and so, so that, that was the framework, that, but not everybody, of course, who was a contemporary of Socrates, was fond of that type of inquiry. And right. so as people, most people probably know, Socrates was sentenced to death um, for impiety, as he was That's alleged right. to be promoting unbelief and irreligion among the young men, right? Well, well supposedly new kinds of divinity different from the standardly recognized ones. That's mm -hmm. the charge. But then, yeah, as it goes on in detail in the description, it turns out some people think he doesn't believe in gods at all. Before we get into sort of the, the rub of the charge against him, I think it's worth discussing a little bit how in, the, in polytheism, uh, ethics and religion are not necessarily intertwined as they are in modern day monotheism, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not that there's no kind of directives that you might think you get from the gods, but yeah, there's, there's certainly no, there's no moral code that, that's written down in some equivalent of the Bible. That there is no equivalent of the Bible. There's things you better not do against the gods. You better not get on the wrong side of them. 
But that has nothing much to do with how you treat your fellow human beings in society. And yeah, I mean, of course, there are very highly developed ethical codes. But yeah, the, the connection between those and Greek religion was pretty loose. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And I think if you look at a lot of other polytheistic traditions around the world, that seem to generally be the case with a lot I of I think them. that's right. Yeah. Maybe some exception on ancient Egyptian religion, depending on what time period you're looking at. But maybe that's a little... I'll take your word for that. Yeah, I I can't speak with authority about that. Okay, so Socrates, though, he was accused of saying that he had within him what he called a daimon, where people might nowadays pronounce a demon if they're British. Yeah. Uh, And Americans, we we would say, I don't know, a daimon probably, I guess. But this inner sort of soul or conscience of his, uh, he believed that that was the source of how he knew what was right. And that was not what some people agreed or wanted to hear. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it was not, it, it didn't speak to him all that often, but yes, it gave him guidance on certain occasions as he understood it. And yeah, that, I mean, that seems to have been the source of the notion that he had non-standard religious ideas or one of the sources anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, he took it quite seriously as far as we can tell. Um, according to Plato, Plato's version it only ever told him not to do things that he was considering doing. In another version, the author Xenophon, sometimes it told him to do things in a positive sense. But yeah, there was. it's not clear how it worked. I mean, was it a voice? Was it just a sort of a beep? Who, who knows? But yeah, it, it was some sort of guidance that he interpreted as having a divine origin. But yes, it was a voice, an inner voice that spoke to him in some way or another. And yeah, he was quite serious about it. But yes, that it uh, it seems likely that was, and there's several places in Plato more or less say that, that that was one of the origins of this charge of impiety or believing in non-standard religious ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, somebody who lived around the same time as Socrates doesn't appear to have any sort of connection as far as we know. We don't know a lot about him was another philosopher named Pyrrho. Yeah. A few gener- yeah, yeah. generations later, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. So, but I, I mean, in terms of like, we don't know what he thought about Socrates, generally speaking. So give us a background on who Pyrrho was, how his ideas sort of became dormant after and then were revived. Right. Times. Yeah. Okay. So Pyrrho, yes, as I said, two or three generations later than Socrates, probably. And yeah, he is the origin of the school of skepticism known as Pyrrhonism. And yeah, we are told that he went, he was contemporary with Alexander the Great, and he went on Alexander's expedition to India, and there encountered some Indian philosophers. We don't know who they were, but they're just called naked wise men in the source that were given on this, and supposedly came back from India with a philosophy that we now call skepticism. Um, now, the, I mean, the exact nature of Pyrrha's ideas is, is very hard to pin down given the lack of evidence. But in the later Pyrrhonist tradition, which, yeah, as you said, there's, there's a gap. He had some immediate followers. And then the Pyrrhonist tradition appealing to Pyrrho was not started until the first century BCE and then lasted for a few centuries after that. The one author in the Pyrrhonist tradition who has written extensive works that have survived is uh, a guy named Sextus Empiricus. And for him, Skepticism consists in suspending judgment. So you don't lay down the law about anything. You don't claim to have figured out the ultimate truth of things. Instead, you 
contemplate all the opposing views on things and come to suspension of judgment because they all have equal credibility to you. And that is supposed to produce tranquility. And yeah, some version of, the, of those ideas or related ideas seems to have been what Pyrrho put forward, but exactly how similar is not so clear. But in any case, that's, yeah, Pyrrho's ideas served as inspiration for some people later in antiquity who picked up that general strand of thought. And so, yeah, promoted a philosophy making suspension of judgment central. So yeah, that, that's sort of a th very short thumbnail sketch of one strand of Greek skepticism. Now I should say an another strand is was in Plato's Academy and they did explicitly appeal to Socrates as a kind of forerunner. But yeah, as you say, there's no evidence to connect Pyrrho with Socrates. And I'm trying to remember, his disciple, Timon, wrote about quite a few other philosophers, mostly in a scathing negative way. I'm trying to remember if he ever refers to Socrates, but I'm sorry, I cannot remember right now. And I'd have to go do some research to figure it out. But in any case, yeah, there's no reason to think Pyrrho was identified himself as a follower of Socrates, or a follower of anyone else for that reason, ex uh, for that matter, except perhaps these Indian thinkers that he encountered on his uh, expedition with Alexander. Yeah, I remember reading a long time ago a book about Sophist, and there was some discussion that perhaps there were some connections between sort of pre-Hindu thought in that tradition, those traditions as well. But it's not, it's so poorly documented, it's really hard to say. So, okay, so, but, and I guess one of the other sort of, and this is an interesting parallel, I think, between the ancient Greco-Roman world and today is that in, in those days, knowledge, the, the realm of human knowledge was much smaller. Right. And so places like the academy or places like the various houses, the Pythagoreans and other schools of thought, they dealt in, in, with enormous breadth of the subjects that they talked about. So I mean, we're talking here, kind of, we're going to be focusing, moving the focus to Pyrrho and, and Sextus. But in the case of Sextus Empiricus, he was part of the empirical school was primarily a, a medical school in a lot of that's, thought. That's right. And so, but but on the other hand, like when you look at uh, the, the academy founded by Plato and, and Aristotle's as well, and, and the Pythagoreans, they, they were doing things on mathematics, they were doing things on history. They were doing things yep. on astronomy. And here's where I think it's interesting as a parallel to the present day, because we're now at this moment in human history where knowledge has actually collapsed back in on itself in a sense because of the, the creation of search engines. That now anyone can actually get true information and begin forming ideas about any particular subject because of the internet. Right. Yep. You don't have to have an, a background in astrophysics or, or surgery to begin looking at these topics. And so in that sense, I think it's a, it's a really fascinating development that really is kind of unparalleled, in, except for at that very moment that we're talking about here with the ancient skeptic. And what's your thought on that? I'm not quite sure I see the parallel here. Well, I mean, in, other words, yeah, I, in other words, anybody can sort of make a foray into a field of knowledge now. Oh, I see. So the parallel that I would say between these ancient times that we're talking about here and, and the present day is that in both cases, people are able to 
venture into fields of knowledge with which they had no direct experience and are able to begin forming conclusions. And in the same way, there were a lot of really stupid and terrible ideas about yeah. how things worked in the ancient world. And we're now kind of seeing that again during COVID. Everybody was a, an expert in uh, biochemistry and uh, public health. Yeah. And in the same way that Aristotle thought he knew how women thought. and Right. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that parallel, but as you describe it, I, I see the point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so there's that phrase of, I think it was Karl Marx, that history repeats first as tragedy and then as farce, whether that, of course, is only once or twice. He's playing off Hegel there. But it is, I think it is the case that a lot of good ideas or modes of thinking also kind of have analogs in bad forms of thinking. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that nowadays, especially with people like Joe Rogan and others who are practicing what I call the zombie Socratic method, mm -hmm. where they're using the, the tools of knowledge to destroy knowledge. Would you, would you agree with that? That sounds like a good way of describing it, yeah. I mean, the, the, the interest in truth in some quarters just seems to have disappeared. But speaking of Rogan, though, the approach that he and a lot of his sort of imitators, both more and, and less intellectually gifted, I feel like with them, they've kind of exposed the sort of the limits of the value of, of skepticism, especially when you lop off the latter part of the argument, which is this is skepticism about things which you cannot really know, and that they've extended it to say, no, this is about everything. And so, therefore, you can question everyone except for yourself. Do your own research. Right. Well, well do your own research. That's, that's a very limited kind of skepticism because, uh, again, I mean, from the ancient perspective, skepticism is suspending judgment. And so, yeah, if you're suspending judgment about some ideas but not others, that doesn't really amount to skepticism. That, if anything, that's the opposite. That's jumping to conclusions. I, I mean, yeah, doing your re own research sounds fine, but being aware of competing points of view, being sensitive to the evidence, that's a crucial element in a genuine kind of open-minded attitude. And yeah, that's not what I see in the kinds of thinkers that you're talking about. It seems like they reject a whole lot of stuff and then unreflectively accept a lot of other stuff. And so, yeah. I mean, as I said, I mean, I, I don't think a full-blooded skepticism is really viable today, but what the lesson that we can get out of it is the willingness to be open to opposing positions and willingness to admit that you might be wrong or that you might be able to learn some more. And yeah, that's the kind of thing that I don't see in the kind of dogmatic positions that the kind of thinkers you're talking about seem to adopt. So yeah, I mean, I think skepticism does have limitations, but the positions that you're talking about are not truly skeptical, if anything, after a certain point, that they're exactly the opposite. And this is where the idea of skepticism and ignorance have, they do have a certain similarity in one sense, right? Well, sure. I mean, a skeptic would not claim to know things. I mean, that's, that's another way of putting the suspension of judgment that's central to skepticism. It's not that they think it's impossible. That, I mean, that would be a definite view in itself, but they don't think they've figured anything out for sure. And so the thing that I think we can get out of that is the notion of keeping an open mind. I mean, maybe they push it too far, but yeah, the skeptic certainly would claim to be ignorant of 
the kinds of topics on which they suspend judgment. That's pretty much a, just sort of repeating the same point twice. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also that, so, I mean, you have dedicated a lot of your career to sort of explaining and examining the ideas of ancient Greco-Roman skepticism. Yep. You wrote a book called How to Keep an Open Mind, which I think it's very relevant to what we're talking about here. Tell, give the audience a little summary of, of what, it, what, that, what your book is. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, and so it's, it's mostly translations from, of selections from Sextus Empiricus to sort of give a basic flavor of what his skepticism is like. But I chose the title because I think that's the kind of lesson that you can get out of it today that's still very much relevant for our times. And I mean, it's not an exact... I mean, that's not exactly just following what Sextus says, because uh, as I say, I mean, I think maybe he pushes the suspension of judgment line too far. For, I mean, for him, uh, suspension of judgment is the route to this attitude of tranquility. And so he doesn't actually want to discover anything. Uh, what he wants to do is uh, keep on balancing opposing ideas so that he's always in this state of uh, suspension. Um, but I mean, I think we we do actually know some things about the world. I mean, as you said, that uh, in the ancient world, much less was actually known, and we there's a lot of things we don't know, sure, but there's a lot of things we do, uh, and so I think f for us, whatever it was, w whatever was the case in the ancient world, for us, suspension of judgment across the board is not really a realistic goal even if you would want it, which is another question too. But I think, generally speaking, the idea of being aware of and alert to opposing points of view, which is central to Sextus's method, that's very much something that I think we can value and learn from today. And so, yeah, that's why I called it keeping an open mind, even though, in a sense, Sextus himself is not exactly open-minded, because he's got this sort of definite program of maintaining his suspension of judgment. But yeah, if, if you take the sort of the parts of his outlook that still have relevance today, keeping an open mind and yeah, being alert to alternatives doesn't mean you never come to conclusions, but whatever conclusions you do come to, you should be prepared to revise in light of new evidence. That, that's what I would think is a good, a good empirical method to go back to that term again. And yeah, as you said, that there's a connection between the medical empirical school and the Pyrrhonists. They weren't all the same people, but a number of them were the same people. And yes, yeah, Sextus Empiricus was, I mean, his title is because he was a member of the empirical medical school himself. And yeah, the empiricists thought that, I mean, they believed in cures for diseases and they believed in medical procedures, but it was all based on experience. What had been seen, shown to work, it was not based on any theory about the underlying workings of the body. It's just based on what procedures have been effective. And that kind of broadly empirical method, that's what I think you can get from skepticism without buying into 100% of what Sextus, has said, Sextus says, which I don't think is realistic for us today. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's, I mean, maybe in fairness to him, that given that he was engaged apparently in some sort of medical practice, mm -hmm. he did it seemed to have beliefs that there were things that actually were well well sure uh, yeah that, that's right no uh, he i mean if, he, he did not advocate this as a cross the board thing no no it's mean, that he placed on it exactly no suspension of judgment is about the real nature of things and in your ordinary life you go by what he calls the appearances 
And so things strike you in certain ways, and that is enough for your practical decisions. And I think, yeah, the, the medical empiricist's experience of what procedures work and what procedures don't work, that would all come under the heading of appearance for him. And yeah, the empiricists, like the Pyrrhonists, didn't claim to penetrate beyond the appearances to some sort of theory, ultimate theory of how things function. In the case of the empiricists, how the human body functioned. In the case of the Pyrrhonists, much broader views about the nature of the world. So yeah, there's plenty plenty of resources for practical purposes, and that that applies to medicine just as much as it applies to regular life. So yeah, I mean, the Galen, the doctor Galen says that the empiricist attitude to medicine is like the Pyrrhonist attitude to life as a whole. Uh, and it's, it, yeah, it's that, as I say, broadly empirical method that I think is the common ground. Yeah. Well, and just to go back to the present moment. In the present moment now, a lot of, there's this misbegotten term called the culture war. And I think it's very inaccurate because really we're seeing with this widespread sort of active weaponized ignorance is this is, we're in a crisis of epistemology, right? That sounds fair. Yeah, sure. And I mean, in the sense that our, how you understand where knowledge comes from, how it can be found, these are the the critical questions of this moment because now we're the world in which we live was kind of created by people who believed in empiricism and empirical reasoning, um, but they created a world in which also there were people they didn't bother to convince of these ideas. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and we were talking before the recording here that I see that there was that we're kind of in the sort of let's say Christian and post-Christian world. We're kind of reliving a lot of the crises that engulfed Islam in the mm-hmm. 1970s, 80s, 90s, in which you had a populace who had no real contact with modernity. And they were suddenly kind of forced into that world by virtue of the world changing so drastically uh, yeah. because of the progress of science. Mm-hmm. And it became very enraging to a lot of people. And we're seeing that continually nowadays. And I think yeah. it's important for people to get that. I mean, is that something you've thought about or written much about recently? I, don't, I haven't written about it, but that, I mean, that seems like a good description of our times. And yeah, I mean, in universities, we try to push back against that and teach people ways of discovering things and ways of reasoning. But that's a relatively small segment of the population is going to be exposed to that. So, yeah. What do you think, though, that, that there is kind of a, an underappreciation for the, thinking, the thought processes that created modernity in, in a lot of sort of, like John Maynard Keynes, he's known for talking about how dead economists rule people, but right. actually the phrase before that is more accurate, and I'm just going to read it here. So he said, the ideas of economists and political philosophers both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Hmm. What's okay. your, you want to riff on that? <laughs> uh, I mean, what's your, well, what's your uh, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe it depends which ideas we're talking about. But yeah, I mean, the, the ideas that have been around before certainly percolate without people realizing them. That, that's, that's certainly true. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, one might wish some ideas had more um, impact than they actually do, um, but, and others perhaps less. Um, 
so yeah um i think it's it's sort of two-edged i'm not i'm not sure if i'd um go along entirely with with uh that uh quote of Keynes. do you see that kind of turning around though that people who do have a better understanding of sound thinking are beginning to realize look We've got to explain this stuff to people. I think there's, in universities, at least in my experience, there's a realization that, yeah, this is a real issue. Whether, how much effect that can have across society, that's another question. I'm, I'm much less optimistic about that. But, um, I mean, at my university, just a few years ago, there was this institute founded that it's kind of political science, psychology, sociology, uh, designed to kind of investigate the foundations of democracy and what we can do to make it more more robust. And a lot of really interesting things have been hired in, for that institute. But yeah, how far that's going to impact the broader society remains to be seen. And yeah, at the very least, it would take a long time to make any kind of difference. So yeah, I mean, I'm, there are certainly people who realize the, the importance of this, how far change can be affected and how quickly, if at all, that's another question. Would you agree then that we do kind of have segment, a minority segment that is kind of at war with modernity? Do you think that's an ad adequate uh, uh, expression uh, sure. of, of what we're talking about here? Yep, that's 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 a fair way to put it. I think, yeah. And how do how do you think Donald Trump sort of fits into that? Well, I mean, he's 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 a symptom of it, but he's also had quite a lot to do with pushing it along. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I have touched on these things a little bit, I suppose, in sort of thinking about this theme of open-mindedness. And yeah, I mean, I wrote a paper that, that kind of explored this a little bit in around 2014. And yeah, I remember giving it, presenting it a few years later, and I thought, oh my God, I can't imagine I wrote this before Donald Trump made appearance on the national stage. But now what I'm saying is so much truer than I could have imagined at the time. So specifically, yeah. like, what were you saying there? Well, that I mean, this general idea that open-mindedness is the message that you can get from Sextus, and that's something that has some value, and there are powerful forces pushing against that. And yeah, that they they were already there before Trump came along, but I think Trump has been a big sort of magnet in, or a big force, making it much more prominent in society more broadly. Or just making it more obvious, perhaps. I mean, maybe it was happening anyway. Well, it was happening anyway. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Now, so I think he, he's both a symptom and a cause, I would say. Mm -hmm. That's uh, not an original idea. Sure. Now, what about outside the United States? Do you think there are similar trends? Some of the same things. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was no accident that, I mean, I'm from Britain, as you can probably figure out. The vote on Brexit in the UK happened... And the, right around the same time when Trump was running for president. And I think that some of the same phenomena are involved there as well. A lot of English people seem to be regretting that decision now. So, yeah, the, 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 I think there, there are elements of it elsewhere. And, yeah, the, I mean, there are far-right movements in Germany. I mean, I'm not a political theorist but or scientist, but, yeah, from my reading of the news, my sense is, yeah, it may be in a particularly extreme form in the United States, but it's certainly, there are parallels a lot of other places in the world. And, well, and including, as you said, I mean, Islamic fundamentalism was a kind of precursor in in many other countries. Yeah, and related to that, I think also is that when you look at the work of, or at least when I've looked at the work of a, a lot of present-day 
fundamentalist religious apologists, they kind of are using the tools of skepticism to question things like biological evolution or question right. things like yeah. the age of the earth and, and, and say things like, well, you weren't there when the earth, the oceans evolved, formed. You weren't there when life was coming out of the sea. So how do you know that that happened? Yeah. And so therefore we can, we have this other narrative here, which says that, hey, God made everything in seven days. And so therefore let's suspend our judgment here. We could be just as right. As, as, as science. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I mean, the answer to that is study some science. And I mean, the trouble is to be able to respond to that effectively, you've got to actually understand the mechanisms of evolution, which of course, we don't understand 100%. That's what science is like. But I think we understand quite a bit. But to get to that, and you're no biologist, but you need to really get into detail. And that's where this kind of attitude falls short, I think. But yeah, again, I mean, teaching people the full details of the theory of evolution, that's not something that is going to happen in a widespread fashion. So yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's tough that the, the, the appeal of that kind of easy answer is, is quite understandable, given the difficulty of actually responding effectively to that kind of pseudo-skeptical challenge, I would call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and, and the idea behind the other idea behind skepticism is that you come to that suspension of disbelief only if these ideas can seem remotely plausible. That's right. Uh, yeah. You have to interrogate the ideas first. Yeah, and if, exactly. And if they cannot survive scrutiny, then you do not suspend. Yeah, disbelief. that's right. And, and I mean, in fact, the, the word skeptikos in Greek means inquirer. So, I mean, that's what Sextus says is these other people, they think they figured out the nature of the world. Uh, and well, and some of them think they figured out that's impossible. Well, I'm not either. I'm still inquiring. I'm still investigating. And that involves, yeah, looking at all the opposing points of view. Now, as I say, I mean, I think Sextus has a too rigid attitude himself. That's always going to lead to suspension of judgment. But the idea of examining opposing points of view, examining the evidence on either side, that's something that is a painstaking, difficult, long process. And that's what serious discovery is like. And, and so, yeah, I mean, the scientific attitude and the skeptical attitude have quite a bit in common. And any good scientist has a measure of skepticism about their own theories, meaning a willingness to go where the evidence leads, which might involve reformulating your own ideas. Um, and well, not just in science. I mean, any good thinker in any subject will have that willingness to revise their opinions in light of new information. And that, yeah, that, yeah. that's not what you see with, with these right-wing movements, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And I think that part's relevant if we jump further ahead in history after sort of the end of antiquity, when some of these French philosophers began sort of rediscovering the work of Sextus. And kind of, that I mean, when you look at the history, like it was this idea that, because again, it's like these ideas, people forget how knowledge works and how you can form it over time. It seems like this is a yep. lesson humanity has to learn over and over. Um, and so with the beginning of the Enlightenment, quote unquote, um, Sextus's work played a, a major role in that. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, and, and new movements of skepticism came along there. But, but then at that point, skepticism became a much more theoretical 
attitude and it was accompanied but i mean descartes is the person who's usually thought to really put skepticism on the map in the early modern period but descartes was also a very serious scientist and a very serious inquirer so yeah i think that connection is a real one and yeah sextus was forgotten about largely not 100% there was a medieval latin translation of some of him but he largely dropped out of sight for at least a thousand years after the end of antiquity and until 1500s, 1600s, Montaigne, a little earlier than Descartes, is aware of him. And and Montaigne's an interesting sort of sceptical thinker, not so much on scientific questions. But yeah, I think that that connection's a real one. Let's get into Montaigne for a second here, because it's also the ideas that he was applying it to with regard to religion and knowledge of the ultimate nature of reality and things like that, and what knowledge is those kind of became the basis of kind of a lot of the works in favor of religious toleration by mm-hmm. John Locke. And of course, David Hume basically used those ideas as well to really make the case that, look, you cannot prove these things that you right. say you believe. In. And that the idea of trying to describe a philosophy, as he famously said, the idea of deriving ought from is, right. you can't do that. Right. Yeah. And so he, yeah, he's, well, as you say, he's one of a longish tradition there. I mean, you've covered a couple of centuries with that list of names. And yeah, those are important figures in the modern enlightenment, uh, broadly speaking. And yeah, Hume didn't, I think, fully understand Pyrrhonism, but yeah, he certainly echoes a lot of its key moves. But yeah, I mean, speaking of religion, I mean, Sextus already had the notion, suspend judgment about whether there are any gods. Doesn't mean you shouldn't go through the religious practices like any normal person would in those days. But yeah, as for the ultimate questions, what are gods really like? As with everything else, there are a whole bunch of opposing opinions, and that's what should lead you to suspension of judgment. Yeah, and I think uh, what's kind of interesting to me is that when you look at Hume or Thomas Hobbes or let's say Edward Gibbon, these you know Scottish Enlightenment philosophers, as they're commonly called now, in a, in a lot of ways they were creating a conservative tradition that was mm-hmm. based on skepticism, right. and that tradition has basically been thrown into the trash can by today's think, reactionaries. Uh, th- that's that's a good point. Yeah, I mean conservatism. Yeah. I mean, originally what that means is being reluctant to change things and because radical change can lead to all kinds of consequences you didn't expect. And that that's a reasonable point of view. And yeah, it has quite a bit in common with this kind of broadly empirical attitude that we've been talking about in, in different periods. And yeah, that that's... I mean, people may call themselves conservatives today, but that is nothing to do with that original notion of conservatism. Yeah. And I think and, I mean, they, that is a really important point because the, these movements pushing Trumpism or Front National in France or right, some of yeah. these other groups, or what's his name? Uh, Viktor Orban right. yep. in Hungary or Vladimir Putin in Russia. These are not conservative traditions that we're dealing with here. And, and it's a grave mistake by people who teach mainstream philosophy or political theory or engage in journalism 
they shouldn't call it conservative. Right. And I think this is, yeah. And I mean, in just in regular politics, I mean, there's been a radical shift just in the last 10, maybe 15, 20 years. I mean, it used to be there were actual conservatives around in, in, in the national political discourse. And I mean, I didn't necessarily like everything they, they put forward, but you know, it was a serious point of view. And now it's very hard. I mean, you can see, you can find one or two, like in the op-ed pages of the Washington Post or something, but in terms of actual politics in Washington, it's disappeared and, and it's a radical shift and yeah, not a comfortable one, I think. To the extent that people are aware of some of these ancient Greco-Roman ideas, like the concept of skepticism or mm -hmm. like what they think the sophists said or what they think the cynics said or whoever, like, I think it's kind of distorted. But you're a professor of ancient political thought. Do you think people, generally, to the extent they're aware of these ideas at all, do they have a good impression in your view or what do you think? Well, I mean... The word skeptic is out there in ordinary language, and in, in normal discourse, it means skeptic is someone who's inclined to be doubtful about things, someone who is not going to accept anything without a good deal of persuasion. That has something genuinely in common with the skeptical outlook in the ancient world. And the same thing with Stoic. I mean, Stoicism was a very specific and detailed philosophy. And yeah, Stoic in ordinary language means putting up with things and to maybe to an extreme. Again, that's a real element in the Stoic philosophy. So, I mean, that just the normal kind of usages of some of these terms do answer to the ancient forms of thought to some extent. But to get really clear on it, you have to read the material and look at it in more detail. So, yeah, I mean, th 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 it's you not a, have a lot there of trouble with it. There is, well, there isn't a complete misunderstanding, as far as I can see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I think that, that's fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I guess maybe let's get further into your How to Keep an Open Mind uh, okay. book here a bit here. Yeah. One of the key points that you make in How to Keep an Open Mind is that Skepticism or the skeptical posture is an ability, and that's something that Sextus says that's rather right. extensively. Yeah. Let's maybe talk about that as a, what, sure. What, what does he mean by? That? Yeah, so so it, it's not a th it's not a theory, it's not a conclusion, it's not a set of statements. Skepticism is a practice, and so yeah, it's an ability to produce suspension of judgment, and so it's it's an activity, and yeah, the ability is being very good at lining up opposing ideas, opposing arguments, imposing impressions, imposing theories in such a way that they have this kind of equal force on either side, which leads you to suspension of judgment. And yeah, with the result of tranquility, as he says. So yeah, uh, and so yeah, skepticism is a way of life. It's not just a sort of intellectual posture, although it is that too. So yeah, as a skeptic, you go about looking for opposing opinions, opposing ideas, and that's what will generate or maintain your suspension of judgment. And yeah, as I said, in ordinary life, you go by the way things appear, but you don't abandon your generally skeptical attitude towards ultimate questions about how things really are. 
and so yeah it's not i mean in in modern philosophy skepticism is often thought of as this sort of purely ivory tower kind of thing where something you could and in fact i mean Hume, david hume says he can discuss skepticism in his study but when he goes out into the world, well, he forgets all that stuff. That's it, it becomes irrelevant. Well, that's not the ancient attitude at all. Uh, for, for Sextus, uh, skepticism is something that you maintain in your ordinary life, and it's a way of improving your life, as far as he's concerned. And yeah, I mean, as I've said, I don't think we can follow that entirely these days. But yeah, for him, it, it's an attitude that pervades your life and makes improves your life as far as he's concerned. Because yeah, you stop worrying about things that you otherwise would be worried about. And that's a very important benefit as far as he's concerned. Mm -hmm. Well, and the proper way of practicing it as well. Like that's also part of the ability, which is that- uh, That's right, yeah. I mean, You there's... cannot arrive at suspension of disbelief until you have completed the process. The suspension of belief, not disbelief. Yeah, oh, sorry, that's yeah, right. Sorry. Suspension of belief. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Sorry. Uh, but um, you, yeah, the, 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 you, that is the end point of a process. It's several steps yeah, before that. That's right. Yeah. So it's it's a technique that you need to develop. And Sextus's writings are endless, and 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 it's kind of overwhelming to go through them all. But they're all. I mean, they're examples of doing this on one topic after another. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he has he has certain sort of recurring moves that he makes, but yeah, it, it, it's clearly a technique that he thinks you have to develop, and yeah, it, it, it'll certainly take time. And yeah, not everyone not everyone has it, and maybe that's okay as far as he's concerned. But he and his friends find this to be an improvement in their lives, and I mean, his attitude in his writing seems to be, you might like to try it too. Maybe you'll uh, find the same thing. Um, yeah, so mm -hmm. that, that's the general idea. Yeah. Well, and sometimes I think people have, there's that colloquial phrase, don't have a mind so open that your brain falls out. Yeah, uh, that, that's right. And I mean, <laughs> yeah, in Sextus's case, yeah, I'm not quite, I'm not sure I'd use quite that same metaphor, but the effect in some ways is maybe the same, which is, He's always aiming for suspension of judgment, and he thinks he's very good at it. And yeah, as I've said, I mean, I think that that's an unrealistic goal for us today. And I mean, so someone who does have an open mind where ideas go in and come in and go out, I mean, that's not going to be in a very effective, a very productive member of society, probably. And so, yeah, again, the thing I think you can learn from Sextus while not buying into him 100% is the notion of being alert to new sources of evidence. But I'm not a practicing skeptic myself. What I think is valuable about it is, yeah, being alert to new sources of evidence and, yeah, being willing to come to conclusions sometimes uh, and deciding that the evidence supports a certain mm -hmm. conclusion. But, again, always being willing to revise your views in light of new information and not being closed off to the possibility of changing your view. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and that's what I think is missing in a, in a lot of these movements that we've been talking about today. Yeah. Well, now, I'm interested, when you've taught this material to students, are there some students who kind of resist this mode of thinking? So, some of them will say, well, this just goes too far, and this is ridiculous. And to a point, I'll, I'll say, well, yeah, I agree. It, 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 from our point of view, it does go too far, because, yeah, as I've said, 
I mean, I think we do actually know some things about how things are in the world. And in, in those days, as you said, I mean, the, the knowledge base was just way more limited. And so in those days, it was possible, it was reasonable to suspend judgment about a lot more things than it is now. Not that there aren't a lot of things even today that we can and probably should probably should suspend judgment about. So yeah, I mean, that that's one reaction I get. Another reaction is often, well, this is just not a basis for making serious decisions about things. And there's something to that. Again, I mean, yeah, as I've said, you, according to Sextus, you live your life based on the appearances. And that that doesn't give you any very sort of full developed, fully developed structure of fully developed basis for deciding things. You go with how things strike you. But maybe that's more realistic than some people would like to think. I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in that respect, maybe I am more sympathetic to skepticism. And personally, yeah, I tend to try to avoid rigid theories of what one ought to do and be just sort of sensitive to how it strikes me at the time. So, yeah, I mean, th those are two sort of common, uh, of, of those who find it not so appealing, uh, those are two sort of common reactions that I get from students. But a lot of times people do think, find it quite attractive. And by comparison with studying Plato, where there are all these elaborate views that no one today would believe for a second. Sextus seems like a, a much more appealing appealing form of thought. So yeah, it often goes over quite well, at least until you get into the details where it gets kind of mind-numbing with all the theories being juxtaposed with one another and led to suspension of judgment. But yeah, I mean, Sextus's best-known work outlines Epirinism, especially the first part of it, is quite intuitive and not too technical. And so that, that's what I usually teach. And that's what mostly is in this book, How to Keep an Open Mind. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, and then now in terms of the, the contemporaries of the Pyrrhonists, um, yeah. there's not too much that we know of what they were thought of, but there's some, right? So I mean, what was the well, response? Well, we're talking about several centuries. I mean, the, the view that Sextus finds most important to kind of combat to attack is the Stoic. Well, and actually, it's true in the academics side of skepticism as well. Cicero has the same kind of attitude. So Stoicism was the most dominant non-skeptical philosophy, broadly speaking, in the period of Pyrrhonism. And yeah, I mean, the Stoics had this very highly developed view. I mean, it's very interesting. And yeah, we have some writings from Roman Stoics, Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor. But the original development of the view in the Greek Hellenistic period, we only have reports and fragments. But there's enough there, I think, to be able to reconstruct it fairly well. So yeah, the Stoics thought that there was a divine providential being that controlled everything. They thought that everything was fated by this divine providential being. They thought that, I mean, they had an ideal of the wise person who understands the nature of the world and has achieved various human virtues. And that true wisdom is almost impossible to attain, but you can work towards it, and some people are closer to it than others. So the ideal of the wise person is understood to be almost never actually achieved, but that it still can be valued as an ideal, and some people will get closer to it than others, and Stoicism is designed to help you move along that path. 
And so, yeah, there's a whole lot of complicated ideas about the nature of the world, about the place of human beings in the world. The Stoics had a lot of complicated views in logic as well. It's a highly developed, intricate philosophy. And this is the view that Sextus finds that, that he's most inclined to combat, although he talks about a lot of other ones too. Another view that was around at the same time is Epicureanism. And that's interesting because they share the same practical goal as the Pyrrhonists, that is of freedom from disturbance. Ataraxia is the Greek word. But they thought you could get it not by suspending judgment, but by coming to understand how things really are. And in their case, their view of how things really are is the world consists of atoms and void. And if you understand the atomic theory, then you will not be bothered by all kinds of worries that religious people are worried by, that is of divine punishment and divine wrath if you do something that displeases the gods. All that, that's just fiction as far as they're concerned. There's a question whether the Epicureans actually did believe in gods at all, but if they did, they were beings that had no concern about human life whatsoever, and so you don't have to worry about them. And so that gives you freedom from disturbance. So yeah, Sextus talks about Epicureans sometimes, but yeah, Stoics are the ones he's most concerned to, to rebut and show the limitations of their views. And yeah, those are two sort of main alternatives to skepticism in the period when skepticism was active. And in, in terms of like the responses that they had though to well um, okay so yeah a, co a common position. yeah a, a common objection to pyrrhonism or actually skepticism of the academic tradition as well is nobody can live like this if you, if you suspend judgment of everything then you have no basis for decisions and yeah as i said i mean sextus is well aware of that charge and he answers it by saying sure we can we just follow appearances without committing ourselves to the real nature of things but yeah the, the both the stoics and the epicureans i think would say well no you to have any sort of serious basis for deciding on what to do you do need to have some understanding of the nature of things and so that, you know, that's a fake answer but yeah, I mean, to my mind, I mean, Sextus has quite a strong position there. Yeah, and it's an interesting point that you make there, because I think that sort of accusation against the skeptical posture, that's really kind of what is going on right now with this reactionary right wing that we are seeing worldwide with Trump and others, that they want people to be forced into the idea that you have to understand that the world is according to what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. And if you don't accept the nature of how we see things, well, then you're evil. Yeah, no, right. I mean, there's a kind of yearning for certainty, perhaps. And yeah, a, a, a perception that contemporary culture has abandoned certainties. And yeah, so that could be a perception of, of there being too much skepticism, perhaps. So yeah, I, I, I think that's a fair point. Yeah. Now, and I guess I, I think overall, though, as we discussed this, the revolution of empiricism in the Enlightenment revival of Sextus's work, and mm -hmm. it created a foundation for a lot of, of technological and religious and political progress, um, yep. both for toleration and for scientific inquiry. Yeah. But uh, th th it does seem like a lot of people haven't really, they, 
appreciated these ideas nowadays. And some of that, a lot of that does have to do with education. And I think, right. I mean, what's like, to me, I feel like th that's why there is so much resistance among these reactionary types like Ron DeSantis mm -hmm. to try to ban right. various teaching of things. Do you see any sort of concordance there with some of these ancient criticisms, or what? Um, well, I'm not sure. I mean, that the, the Stoics and the Epicureans were not trying to sort of impose a view across society. I mean, they, they were a, a, a small groups of people themselves. So, in that sense, I, I wouldn't see a parallel. But I mean, the general frame of thought perhaps is similar. Yeah, I mean, the the feeling that something you've got to stick with some ideas no matter what and yeah i mean the, the idea of an ancient philosophical school is you know you make a certain set of commitments to one of these views or the other and you stick with them i mean not everyone did that so i mean some people occasionally would change schools but yeah in that sense i do see sort of a parallel with this kind of yearning for certainty even if it's certainty that they know is wrong or uh, might well, be incorrect mm, but no, I'm saying in the modern day that, in other words, like, for instance, like we've seen with, I mean, just the just cavalcade of you know, information of, of biology and history and yeah. um, paleontology showing that the world is not seven days, wasn't made in seven uh, right. days and yeah. is not 6,000 years old. So the people who hold these views in the present day, they know that they're discredited. But they want to continue to believe them because there is a fear of uncertainty with mm -hmm. a lot of us, right? Sure. Yeah, that, that's right. And so, and I mean, I think Sextus himself tends to suggest the kind of default position of human beings is towards dogmatism. And he's presenting his philosophy as a kind of recipe for getting away from that. So, yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, ultimately, though, I mean, for people who do have those perspectives, like, I think they view the suspension of belief not as a place of enlightenment, but as a right. place of fear. Yeah. And let's maybe end on that point. How does Sextus and how would you make the case that, look, not being 100% sure of the world, that's actually a good thing? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it can be scary. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, um, I mean, it's, they're not responding to nothing, but may, maybe it depends on different temperaments of different people. But, I mean, one temperament that I think there needs to be a lot of in society is willingness to reconsider your ideas. But, yeah, it comes with risks. There's no question about that. And I mean, in my own profession in universities, I mean, people embarking on new research projects, I mean, who knows if, you know, you might not know how well they're going to succeed. And that's risky in, in all kinds of ways. I mean, it might be risky for your career, so it might make you nervous in, in all kinds of other ways. So, yeah, I mean, that, that that's a response to a real phenomenon, but some difficult things are good to confront for the sake of the outcomes that result. And yeah, I mean, as I've tried to emphasize all through this, I mean, the lesson I think we can get from Sextus is the notion of being sensitive to new evidence, to being willing to reconsider your ideas. And that's how discovery gets made. And it's never a final decision for all time, but that's how intellectual progress occurs. And that can only be good for society in the long run. But for the practitioner of inquiry, 
that can be uncomfortable sometimes, but there are uncomfortable things in life that are nonetheless worthwhile. Well, and I guess maybe in the personal level, though, he does mm. say that he go, does go pretty extensively that when you believe that you know everything and the, how the nature of things are and what, the, how, what constitutes all good behavior, yeah. that that actually is incredibly stressful. That, well, that's right. I mean, it, it's especially what he focuses on, especially is beliefs about some things really being good and other things really being bad. So, so sort of value decisions. And yeah, his notion is, well, you're, if that's your idea, that some things are really, really good and other things really, really bad, well, then you're going to be obsessed about getting or keeping the good things and avoiding the bad things. I, mean, I think that's one of the less convincing parts of his view. I mean, it, it, sometime it, in some contexts, it makes sense. In other contexts, it makes less sense. But, the, but, I mean, his, but his, his attitude is get away from that, and that will give you tranquility. Well, again, sometimes yes, sometimes no, perhaps. And so, yeah, I mean, that's another part where I think maybe I wouldn't agree with Sextus entirely, because, yeah, I mean, I, I think the notion that it's uncomfortable, un uncertainty is uncomfortable, I think that's a real thing. And what I would say is, well, yeah, it is, but deal with it, because the, the benefits of having that mindset broadly distributed across society is potentially very great. Well, and I guess uh, this is kind of a thing he may have in common with the Epicureans is that mm -hmm. he's saying that if you become obsessed with attaining or obtaining that which you believe is really good and avoiding that which you believe is horrible, your life circumstances are never going to be such that that's always going to happen for you. And sure. So if you yeah. believe that this thing is the sine qua non of your life yeah. and you can't get it, in a sense, accepting your circumstances, maybe that's an Epicurean line of thought. No, I think that's right. That's one of the key things that he wants to get away from. And to that extent, I think he has a point. But yeah, un uncertainty has discomforts of its own. But that's the thing that I'm saying, well, too bad. Deal with it. Because yeah. the alternatives are more problematic. <laughs> and that's been a major theme of what we've been talking about today, I think. All right. Well, do you have any parting thoughts on the topic here to leave the audience with? Well, I, I mean, I think we've covered a lot of ground, mm -hmm. but yes, I'm all for keeping an open mind. And I hope as many people as possible are the same way. But yeah, keeping an open mind doesn't mean not believing anything whatsoever. Checking your beliefs every so often and making sure they still seem right would be part of the program. Yeah. And keeping an open mind includes doubting yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. But not to the point of paralysis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, we've been speaking today with Richard Bett, and he is a philosophy professor at Johns Hopkins University and also the author of the book, How to Keep an Open Mind. Thanks for being here, Richard. Thanks very much. Enjoyed it. All right. So that is the program for today. I appreciate everybody for joining us. And you can get more if you go to theoryofchange.show. Uh, all of the episodes have video, audio, and transcript. And you can access them all if you are a paid subscribing member. And so I do encourage you to go to theoryofchange.show and you could subscribe on Patreon or on Substack, whichever one you prefer. And I appreciate that very much. Thanks a lot. I'll see you next time.